tonight, we're in the midst of our series on the origin of the scriptures, and we're focusing on inspiration. That's where we are. And then we're going to keep going into inerrancy and infallibility, which is going to be big discussion, and finally end up with a little bit about the translations and various versions of scripture. If you're following along in the books that we're reading, these are some of the books that I've put up. We're right now looking at two of them, Biblical Inspiration, which is kind of like the Cliff Notes version of this subject. It's not a very long book, but it'll give you an overview if you're interested in following along. If you want to get more deeply into it, I've been reading Inspiration Authority of Scripture by Rene Posh, and the reason I like this book probably so much is as I was digging into his background, I found out that before he contributed quite a bit to this area of theology, he was by trade a lawyer. So maybe that's why we get along so well when I'm reading this, I think. He first used a lot of his skills in that area and then decided to use his legal training in the area of inerrancy and inspiration and authority and contributed quite a bit there. So that's kind of cool. That's a much larger book, but I recommend it, especially if you're struggling with some of the material that we're going to cover, uh, because it is well argued and well thought out and cites a whole host of things. It's probably one of the better sources I've seen so far. Just to review very briefly from last week, we covered three topics, or at least we introduced the definition of three topics last week. We're in the subject of inspiration, which I said relates to the action and interaction that God has with the authors, but what exactly was the action and the interaction? That's what we're going to be talking about tonight. But I just wanted to point out that inspiration wasn't related to transmission and all those things. We're talking about the originals. We also differentiated it from illumination, which is really God's interaction, the Holy Spirit today, now as we read and interpret and understand how he brings light to the readings now as we understand them. And, of course, all of this falls into the subject of revelation. That's the, the concept of God revealing himself or the question of how does God reveal himself. And we said that falls in, into general revelation, like if you look out and see the creation is an example, or maybe the way he's worked through history is an example of his general revelation, but we're focused more on specific revelation, like God revealing himself to the prophets or in the incarnation. And the question, again, we're covering tonight is, is scripture, can we consider that revelation from God? Is it revelation from God? We looked last week at different views on inspiration. In a moment, I'm going to leave these up on the screen as Jeremy and I talk about them, but just so you kind of keep them in mind. Some people have looked at it and said it just means that the whole Bible was dictated literally, verbally by God to people who just wrote it down. Some people think that the Bible authors were just witnesses to what was going on. They were witnesses to God's revelation. They were moved to write down these experiences, but that there was really no inspiration of what they wrote. The inspiration just occurred when they were moved, the witness that they saw. Some people have posited the Bible is no different than any other book, but the Holy Spirit can use that book to teach or illuminate things now. But in its writing, it was just as fallible as any other book. Another person has posited that inspiration just really means like when people are inspired because of the divine interaction to write something meaningful. And we kind of said that that might be, last week we kind of tossed that out, so that might be relying too much on an English understanding of the word inspiration. And then finally we said the Bible could just be the work of just, who just wrote something and they were just pretty eloquent in the way they wrote it. But there's really nothing special about it at all. And I added the view that I believed. And I said that on a human level, the authors were allowed to use every way in which they wanted to write their work, their text. Whether that included collecting information, using sources, citing others, 
interviewing people, writing historical things, hearing from God, collecting prophecies, their own experience. And they were doing that at a human level and simultaneously, at the same time, the Holy Spirit superintended their writing. So that what resulted was the actual word of God. Now tonight you're going to hear maybe a different view on that, but I at least want to define what this view is so that you can hear this word because I feel like we couldn't talk about inspiration without at least putting this word up here. You might hear the word plenary inspiration, or some people would say plenary and verbal inspiration. And I just want to define it, and then I'm going to move into more dialogue. Here are two quotes from different theologians that try to explain what plenary inspiration is all about. For example, one statement says this, in the composition of the original manuscripts, the Holy Spirit guided the authors even in their choice of expressions, and this throughout all the pages of the scriptures, still without effacing the personalities of the authors. Another person tries to explain it this way, the original documents of the Bible were written by men, and I should add, and women, who, though permitted the exercise of their own personalities and literary talents, yet wrote under the control and guidance of the Spirit of God, the result being, in every word of the original documents, a recording of the exact message which God desired to give to man and women. So, let me stop there. Here's the questions I want to cover tonight. Let me invite Jeremy to come on up. We're going to make it more casual like we've done in the past. There's two questions we're going to cover tonight. By the way, you can ask any question you want. It doesn't have to be on the screen. But the two questions that Jeremy and I have kind of laid out is, one we kind of tackled last week in brief, we highlighted it, but we didn't answer it because I wanted us to answer it tonight. And that is, is the Bible the Word of God, or does it just contain the Word of God? You might even say it doesn't even do that, but I'd like to at least discuss that question. The other one is, was the Bible the product of plenary inspiration? And if not, what does that mean? What is the Bible according to these different views? And I want to kick it off there if we can. I've already declared my bias. Um, I do believe that the Bible is the Word of God. But if I asked you, like, well, what does it mean for the Bible to just contain the Word of God rather than be the Word of God? How do you explain the difference in position to somebody? You know, where's the distinction? So, right, in the Gospel of John, the Word of God is referred to in a Trinitarian sense, or at least the, the, the Trinitarian theology that we developed later in the church comes out of this idea that the Son is the Word of God and the Word was present, those types of statements. And that it's not, that in that case is not referring to the Bible. It's not referring to text, it's not referring to scriptures, it's referring to something else. And I think that historically speaking in the last 200, 300 years, at least part of this question has come out of the fact that we as an academic community have taken text and have taken text apart and we've analyzed it and because we've created this distinction between the Word of God as the Son and the Triune, the, the third member of the Trinity, and then the text, right, the scriptures, and, and that we can at least study one of those, right? We can study the scriptures, that makes sense to us. We can break it apart, we can understand the genre, it's literary. I mean, in some sense, the statement that Jesus is the Word of God that's, that's just much more of an abstract kind of, it, it's not the, it doesn't seem to be the same thing. This question actually comes up in the early 20th century, especially with, you mentioned Karl Barth. He, in his first book of the Systematic Theology, he basically lays out a perspective that 
the scriptures stand as a witness, a testament to the word of God, the revelation of the incarnate son, but that they're not the same thing. And if it is different than the son, than the word, what does that mean for what it says? And what does that mean for the types of statements that we make about the Bible? And I think that in some ways, the reason this question has become important is, at least in my own view, the American a Christian evangelical church has really made the Bible an idol. It's, it's become idolatrous. Or I might put the question differently by saying, at least to the, the second question that's up here, was the Bible the product of uh, verbal inspiration allowing us to say that the entirety of the text is the word of God? I might say, why does it need to be? Why is that such an important question? Or why is it so important that all of these statements which we have said have to be true in the same way that we would say Jesus is truth? Why, why would they be the same? Let me, let, me add, let me press into that a little bit. So one of the issues is we do know that Christ is the eternal logos, right? The word, right? Um, but does that preclude scripture from also being a revelation from God? I mean, consider for a moment that we wouldn't even know that Christ is the Logos were it not for the fact that John wrote those words for us to know as truth. The funny thing is that many of the people who kind of denigrate Scripture and its authority are the first to toss out John. They think John is the weakest of all the Gospels, and there's whole books written on why it should never have even been included, and yet we use a reason from that very book to say that Christ is the Logos of God, the eternal word, and I believe that. But that somehow that makes him the only revelation or the only thing. Why couldn't both of them exist? I, I would at least say uh, first that it's not that you can't have both existing. It's that whether or not they're the same thing is just a legitimate question to ask. And in my perspective, as we kind of unpack tonight, I don't think they have to be the same thing because I don't think that they can be the same thing. So when we talk about the Logos, when we talk about the Word, I don't know that the statement is true that we wouldn't know it without the Bible. The apostles knew it, and the, the early disciples knew it, and they knew it by experience, and they knew it by, by transmission of, of Word and faith and deed. And the word of God appears throughout the Hebrew scriptures in, in a different context where it's prophetic or where it is in the activity of those people who remained faithful in the tribes of Israel. It, not in, well, it's, it's, it's here because it's recorded in this document. That, that's not the sense in which it's used there either. So the question again is, or, or I guess the statement I would say is that this problem or this issue of the Bible being the Word of God, I almost think is a, a manufactured issue from, from our generation. It's, it's manufactured from the last 200 years, and, and I think it's more of a knee-jerk reaction, quite frankly, from, from fundamentalism that, that, has, that felt, has felt threatened by this kind of opening up of faith and religion, so much so that it's reacted so strongly. Well, just so that we're clear, I think that you and I both agree that God does reveal himself, right? I think we both agree that he does that. And I, and I also want to agree up front 
I don't believe that scripture, even if it is the word and there is a revelation of God, is the same as the living eternal word, Christ Jesus, the Logos. But I think that he did cite to it and give authority to it so often that he seems to, even when he could have just dismissed it, kind of remained, I would almost say, reliant upon it uh, throughout his ministry. But I'm going to come back to that let, let Philip kind of... Uh, the first question is, like, is the Bible the Word of God? I'm talking a lot about like what the Word of God is. Um, would that be a different question to be asking, like, is the Bible revelation from God? Or a revelation of God? Like, or is that meaning the same thing? So like, even as Jeremy's saying, like, that if we look at the Word of God as Jesus, well, obviously the Bible isn't Jesus. Like, it's a document, it's a person, it's incarnate, and they're like, that they're different, but like John seemed to be saying, well, yeah, but could it be that this is also revealed from God? And like, but not necessarily, I, I don't know, like that title, the Word of God, I feel like, I feel like focusing on that is weird if, if what we really mean by it is, is this from God? Is this revealed from God as opposed to not? I don't know, is there a distinction there is my question. Like, Another thing that might be helpful too is the use of the word revelation. I think last week you mentioned that there's kind of this idea of general revelation and then special revelation, and that like the Bible might be an example of special revelation. And I actually think that those concepts are also fairly artificial, and that what I think is revealed from God can be any number of things. When we're talking about like what is revelation, that's an important thing to define. You know, if like you said, general revelation as creation. Well, again, I would ask, why does it have to be that? I mean, why is it just the case that God reveals God's self to us in a variety of ways? I think that's actually valid. I think that God does reveal himself in multiple ways. I think the only reason we've created that distinction is because the difference between general and specific is just not that one is better, but that one is more specific. I mean, somebody had to say, like, that, yes, Paul seems to describe a general revelation, but there's also specific instances in scripture where somebody's saying, like, how are they to know unless they hear? And how are they to hear unless you tell them? And there seems to be an impetus to say that the, whatever God has revealed in general is not enough for the purposes of what they should know about God or what he wants them to know about himself specifically. And so that you could look out at general revelation, see the beauty in the of the earth and think somebody might have made this, right? You could see that, but you might not get from that that what God wants you to know about him is this thing or this list of things or the relationship he wants to have with you. You just might know that he's there. And I think that's why we've created that, but you know, I don't want to dive too much into that. Well, like, what is the motivation like, for calling the Bible the Word of God? Like, if there's obviously this kind of distinction has been one that's been debated, so I didn't want to change the wording of it, first of all. Uh, partially to answer Philip's question as well, you could say, is the Bible in its entirety God's revelation? You could rephrase the question that way. Or does it merely contain either instances or echoes of God's revelation? That would be another way to rephrase this, okay? The reason I use the word of God is because that's the way it's been classically debated. 
But there is also something to it because it does elicit the response that Jeremy brought up about there is only one word of God. That itself was a word that John used, right? Kind of like, what's the purpose of calling it the word of God? Like, what's the motivation behind that title in particular? Yeah, it's probably, I would say, because historically throughout the ages, that we have to think that for a long, long period of time, all of the early church fathers, all of the reformers, all the way into the 18th century, 19th century even, I would say, all looked at the inspired word, kind of, they just took it for granted. And it was called that, like it had the power of being God speaking through the scriptures. Over and over we find that people in the New Testament were citing things from the Old Testament that God hadn't even said and attributing it as God said. And so they were using it interchangeably as these words have the force of God's own words. That's the reason that the phrase kind of becomes the focus of the debate. The funny thing to me is if we take that out and say that scripture in its entirety is not God deciding to give us these specific words in every instance, we get kind of a weird result in my opinion. And I'm not defending the position because of this result, but I just want to point out, because somebody asked last week, well, what's the consequence of this question? Why, why do we even care? And the point to me comes down to, we spend an awful lot of time trying to search these scriptures, trying to understand what God is saying to us. But if we don't know that God is actually saying anything in this particular part of what we're reading, it seems kind of like a silly exercise that we would get behind the author's intent or what the literal word meant in Greek or we search for other words of the time or other writings to say, well, how is this word used in other contexts? Like All of that would be meaningless because we would literally be trying to figure out, well, first let's figure out if this part is even from God. Maybe this is just the author editorializing around some other thing that they might have gotten from God. And that's why I think the question is crucial about does it contain bits and pieces or echoes or parts of the word of God or is it all of it meant to be in the final product as if he were speaking to us? That's why I think the import of the question is. Because we do have a lot of silly behavior otherwise in churches. Like even when preachers preach and they say, you are like, well, wait a minute. Like the first objection should be, I don't know that I believe that God said that. That would be the objection every single time. Now, I'm not trying to say, I'm not trying to make a slippery slope argument, which is what fundamentalists have done by the saying you take one word away and the whole thing falls apart. But I'm trying to point out that at some point we do get there. In, in many conversations that we've had offline, Jeremy's mentioned Rudolf Boltmann as an example of a theologian who kind of looked at the Bible at some point and to summarize his views briefly thought, you know, I think that there might be elements of some inspiration or something happened here, but, but we need to demythologize this whole book because there's probably legends and myths and all sorts of things mixed up in here. And so you start to like go down that path and pretty soon nothing that's miraculous, nothing that's spiritual is left in. And there's a whole list of things, for example, that he denies. Now, he's to one extreme. I don't know that you're quite at that level, right? I mean, you're, you, you like Boltmann, but you like him because he's provocative, right? Actually, I, I think uh, I've, I've read almost all of his writings. And, I mean, Boltmann has significant weaknesses. But Bolt, he's, his work is 80 years old. <laughs> his scholarship moves really quickly. But the one thing I think that's important to take from someone like Boltmann and, and others, like Tillich, for example, is that... They were Christians, and 
their starting point was different. So for them, their starting point revolved around a more philosophical idea of the divine, a more philosophical idea of what it means to be religious, of what it means to be someone who practices faith. And it's tied deeply into the kind of existentialism of the time. And so I would, I would go so far as to, to, to I, mean, I do agree, at least in part, with Boltmann's project, that uh, if, if we were to simply look at the, at the text, we see all kinds of commonalities that it shares with other religious traditions from the ancient Near East, almost word for word in some cases, in terms of just the stories that are there. And anthropologically speaking, you know, if we just if we just take the divine element out of it, one could just stop and say, yeah, well, you know, all of these things that come out of the ancient Near East, they all, uh, whether it's Assyrian or from Israel or from Sumeria, they have a flood story, they have a creation story, and they have this story. So clearly, they shared some common cultural event, some common cultural experience. And, and these things were woven into the fabric of their different religious I mean, one could just stop there and say, yeah, it's just, you know, religion in these cases is simply a function of society. And it's actually people like Boltmann and Tillich, I think, who actually responded to that question and said, while it may be the case that they all have these flood stories or they have these other stories and yeah, there's commonality, there is something to the experience of the divine and religion and God and faith that is deeper than just this specific text or this specific set of beliefs. So it's, it's ironically that these, these, these two guys like Tillich and Boltman who take a great deal of grief from conservatives and fundamentals, these guys were actually part of the defense of the faith during the modern era when science was bearing down and, and all of these forces were kind of bearing down on Christianity and saying all of this stuff is just a bunch of superstitious junk from a bygone era and, and we're, going to, we're going to persevere past it just with our, keep our intellect. These were actually some of the guys who said, well, okay, yeah, you may have some points here, here, and here, but that's not what faith is and that's not what the experience of the divine is. But yeah, certainly Boltmann, you know, is a great example. You know, Jesus didn't walk on water. There was a reef out there or whatever, those, those kinds of things. But it goes beyond that. I mean, I read some of the stuff that Boltmann didn't believe in. The pre-existence of Christ, the virgin birth, his deity, the miracles, uh, his substitutionary death on the cross, the resurrection of the believers, his ascension, his return in glory, the final judgment, the existence of spirits, the person of the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of the Trinity, death or as a result of sin. Like... That's not Christianity anymore at some point. I mean, you get to the edge of like denying the deity of Christ. You're like, if we had any other study of religions right now and, and we said, okay, yeah, they deny the deity of Christ and the virgin birth, you'd say, yeah, probably outside the orthodoxy by a mile. I, in my view, you get a very clear picture that he, he did believe. I mean, he, he was, he was almost, he's almost pastoral in his writing. And he's idea, pretty old in yeah. essays. One of the things I want to point out about what you're talking about about Boltman is the, the idea of sourcing, like just because a story that's recited in the scriptures was also recited by other societies, to me is not an, a reason to discredit it. In fact, if all the peoples of the world experienced something, right, and they all wrote about it, that would actually be a greater reason for it. 
Um, so like a flood, you know, a, a, a catastrophic flood, some event, some memory of what the creation uh, story originally was as to all people went through. That doesn't, you know, bother me as other people write about it in their religions any more than if like the American history and the Canadian history ended up being very, very similar because they experienced it from different sides of a border. It'd be like, well, that doesn't invalidate one person's view. And I want to focus that specifically on like the New Testament for a moment. Like one of the definitions I give out about plenary inspiration is that the authors were allowed to use whatever they needed to to write their stories. There's been a lot of people who've said, well, I don't really see how you could say that Matthew is inspired or Luke might be inspired because they seem to borrow a lot from Mark or borrow from some other source that we've talked about, like the Q theory of some source that's getting out there. And it's like, I want to point out that that doesn't seem to be a problem under that theory. That, again, people can write the way we write, the way we consult things. I mean, when I write or when I research or I do anything, I don't just make it up completely from scratch. I'm consulting things. And that's a very human way of writing things. And I don't think that that at all abrogates the fact that inspiration could still superintend that whole process. And that's just something I want to point out as we hear about the different things. Commonality, though, doesn't point to anything other than commonality. So I think, again, while certainly one could be dismissive in saying, oh, because there's all of these commonalities and these shared experiences, it was, you know, just that's just what it was, right? But, and, and that's probably not right, so if I, I don't mean to be dismissive, but in the same sense, it doesn't get you any further the opposite direction. And so it could simply be, again, at least with something like the flood, that some, you know, 6,000, 7,000 years ago, however long, and there was a region that was flooded and people were forced to migrate, and as they migrated, they took the story with them. I mean, that's all it could be. At least in my no, perspective, you need, you need more I just want to point so. out that it doesn't disqualify, because that seems to be a big tool that, that people have heard about, maybe you haven't even heard about it, but it's kind of written about quite frequently, like, well, if we see this kind of commonality, you know, then that just must mean that it was borrowed from somewhere, and that must mean that it can't be inspired. Like, I don't think that follows through logically at all. Okay? Well, I think like one of the things, like, with the commonalities, like, you still have to, would have to answer the question, well, why are you going to say that this account of the philosophy is divine and inspired, but, like, the other one, like, I don't know, however many miles away that was found, and it's an account of the flood story is not. So, like, that question you still have to answer. Especially when the other one's older and yeah. comes before the, the... But I don't think that that's, I think that's, again, an improper view of inspiration to say, like, something's older. Again, the sources that predated the gospel writers were older, if there were these sources. But that didn't make them inspired, because the Holy Spirit didn't superintend the writing of that source, or maybe it was carried some other way. So our test isn't what's older. Our test isn't, is it in existence? The test is, was that something that we came to believe was inspired by the Holy Spirit and superintended as the authors wrote it? Again, I believe that Luke interviewed people. He probably consulted sources. He wasn't an eyewitness to some of those things. He was traveling with Paul. Like Those kinds of things would be the way anyone would write a book. But if you believe in inspiration, and I'm saying it out there as an if tonight, the way that I'm presenting it, the difference would be not that there weren't other accounts, but that this account was superintended by the Holy Spirit. That would make it different. So that in the flood story, another story existed, that wouldn't be the test for inspiration if my view was there. I would say in response that it's quite possible that it was inspired by the divine. Again, the only thing that says it isn't, and at least in my view, is a theological opinion that, it, that it's not inspired. 
and, and we, we can just keep going back into that. But and, it either is or it isn't, right? I mean, we, don't, we may never know whether it is or it isn't, but I mean, if inspiration, and I, I'm saying if, if inspiration means that the Holy Spirit superintended that process through divine intervention, he either did or he didn't. So it's not a theological decision. I mean, we're, we're trying to decide, and we may be wrong, but it's not like theology just makes a statement like, it is, so therefore it is. Like, so theology actually doesn't change the nature of inspiration. It either is or is not inspired. Well, I think that's maybe where I'm being misunderstood in that I do think that inspiration is a theological statement in and of itself. The, the, the doctrine or the, the theology of inspiration is, in some sense, to me, nothing more than just that. Inspiration is more than just saying God superintended this to be inspired. Inspiration, at least for me, could be that which comes from the inexhaustible content of the divine which permeates all of creation. The force? <laughs> yeah, <it's> like, <laughs> and so, but again, I'm not, I'm not saying right now that I feel like going that far. I just want to put it out there that, that at least I think that, you know, we try and be so specific when we say, well, this is what we mean by inspiration, but I'm not even sure that what we mean by inspiration is what inspiration really is. Okay, so let me take a pause make sure. Do we have any questions going on this one, anybody? Philip? What you mean when you say like something is just a theological concept, like, I don't really understand what you mean by that, because I feel like if it's saying, well, it's just a theological concept, so it doesn't have much meaning, or the, I don't really understand. Like, sure, let me, give you, let me give you a different example, because inspiration is hard, at least, I, I struggle with the inspiration thing too, okay? So something that's easier, right, and we'll talk about next week, so I'm not going to, inerrancy, right? To me, the idea of inerrancy is nothing more than an idea. In other words, it's not something that you can find in Bible, the Bible that says, you must think about all scriptures that they are inerrant for the following reasons. So it's something that later, and I think more, and more contemporarily, we've said, just as an example, that the text, are, we must read and understand the text in these certain ways. And if we don't do it, then it's wrong, you have a wrong understanding, or you, or you, don't, you don't get my, my point would be that that kind of thinking, right, that kind of thinking about inerrancy as an example, is a theological statement. It's, and theological statements are fluid and are flexible and don't have the same authority as, say, well, you could have a different theological perspective. That, that, that's what I'm saying, is that you, you can think differently about but it. My thought was, like, what John was saying, like, even with inerrancy, like, either, like, the Bible has errors in it, like, or it doesn't. Like, or, like, then it's one or the other, like, but it's either true or not. So, like, is, when you say something's just a theological perspective, you just mean it's a belief that's not from the Bible? It's a belief about the Bible that could be thought differently. I would go the next step and say that something like inerrancy, for example, is just wrong thinking. In some sense, that very quest, in my perspective, is wrong thinking about what the religious experience actually is, or what God's self-revelation actually is. That's a that's a bigger that's a bigger conversation for a different time. But 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 theology isn't without barriers. Even Jeremy has pointed out in the past that like there are parameters to it. Take the subject, I don't want to go into inerrancy too much, but just because he used that example, it flows from an idea, right, that is scriptural. So it's not like we just decided to add a layer and think, we're going to think of it this way. Or because the early church fathers, which by the way, all of them, if you go to Augustine, Arrhenius, um, Athanasius, like you go through like a whole litany of people 
who didn't have any question about inspiration and attributed that it was inerrant as a result. To simplify it down to its smallest element, you think, if scripture is revelation from God, and if God doesn't lie, God is always truthful, then every word must be truthful. So let's just say that, and we're going to make it a lot more complicated than that, but let's just say you simplified inerrancy down to that thing, and you said, so there's my theological belief. My belief is that it is inerrant, but it comes from logical things that flow right out of the text itself. The irony here in discussing this is that we're appealing to a text that we haven't even established is all the word of God or that is all true. That's what makes it funny that we're even having a discussion about theology that flows from the text when one of the consequences of not establishing the text is, well, which part of the text would you use? I mean, let's just say that you took one of the evangelists and threw them out and said, I don't really trust Luke's account or I don't trust... John's account. I mean, you've already altered your view of Christ and things he said, right? You might lose an important doctrine if you threw John out, like something very important to a Trinitarian understanding, like how Jesus reveals the Father. That whole concept could be gone. So something theological like the Trinity, that wouldn't even matter at that point, because we've actually not even sure that that truth, which John was writing about in that word, Well, that just might be a nice piece of fancy philosophical ideas that he was having when he was sitting wherever he was writing that, but it's not even part of the revelation. So there goes that. So let's leave that there. And I want to go back to this question because I don't feel like we've totally hit it, which is if I asked you, Jeremy, it does contain revelation or words from God. Like, how would we know? Like, how do you, when you look at it, say, for example, I'll make it an easy example so maybe we can agree on something. Like, Clearly, there's recordings of what God told the prophets. Go and tell them this. Do you think that that is God's words, or do you think that we don't really even know if they recorded them accurately to say that that really is God saying, go and tell them this? My first response would be to say, why is it so important that we know the answer to that question? Well, I think like in the case of like the Ten Commandments or, or, or the law itself, like, a whole peoples were like doing what the Lord commanded, right? And we still try to look at the scriptures to figure out like when Jesus says, like, here's the way that my people should live, right? I mean, we're pouring over the wisdom that he left behind trying to become disciples like the way he asked. It would be, I mean, I guess it'd be a lot easier if we just said we're not even sure he said this. The great existential irony is that even if you say God spoke to the prophets, and then the prophets turned around and said, yeah, I had a conversation last night with God, and he told me to do this. They still didn't do it. I mean, that's the greatest irony of all, that in, in this, at least to me, in the sense that, you know, we want so badly to say, God spoke. And the prophet turned and said, and God spoke this to me. And now go and do it. And nobody did it. You know, that to me, and that's why I asked the question, is why is it so important to know that, or to say, God must have spoke, because even if that's the case, and I'm not saying that it's not, by the way, but even if that's the case, it didn't seem to have any more impact or any more importance to like the, the core of the person. It's true that throughout most of the scriptures, people didn't listen to the prophets. Jesus said they killed the prophets, right? Jesus himself said that if a man would rise from the dead, they wouldn't believe in him. But I don't believe that Jesus didn't rise from the dead just because people don't believe in him. 
right? So, I mean, to say that just people didn't follow the prophets and said killed them, Jesus made the same commentary, but that doesn't mean that God didn't speak to them, does it? Well, my only point into that is, is, is to highlight that I, I think, again, we place such a high emphasis on something that, let me put it differently, you know, this question of inspiration and what is the word of God often is, is connected to this idea that we want to say that in whatever the original texts were, right? Because we don't have any of those original texts. That there are none. And whatever those original texts were, that we, we can trust that it was from God. Philip? Uh, I feel like if we don't know that these are things God spoke, that these are from God, like, then we can't draw anything out of it. Like Maybe God spoke the exact opposite. The prophet went down and like, turned around and said, this is what God spoke to me, and like, totally lied to everyone. And maybe every prophet's done that. And so maybe God's really not forgiving. Like maybe the Israelites have been doing what they're supposed to do all along. And like you know, like we don't know if we don't know it's from God. So we can't draw anything from it at all if we don't have a belief that it's from God. And that's why the question is important, saying, do I believe these this is from God? Because if I don't believe it's from God, I have less reason to trust it. And so I have less reason to believe any themes or any ideas or anything about God from this. I just believe it's random writings. My, my comment about the irony was more in that I, what I was trying to bring out was that God, and, and when we're talking about inspiration, works in deeper ways than just through text and to, through transmission of text. That it's a personal connection with the divine. So when we say God spoke to the prophet and the prophet spoke to the people, I don't know that that means God verbally spoke to the prophet. But ultimately, the question is like whether that is from God in some way. Like, not necessarily did God verbally speak it. I assume it got her. Because I think there's a big difference between like is this from God versus like did God say these words? Like that's totally different. Like these exact words, like in this language or whatever, would be. I mean, regardless of like that would have to be like some type of accommodation because like the fullness of. Like God can't be captured in words, and especially in one specific language, like your dialect. And so, something's already accommodation of God, and so it's, it's very different to be like, okay, if it's from God, well, what does that mean? Like, is there some type of revelation, and like this is a witness to an experience, versus like, did God like verbalize these things, and then somebody like have parchment and like ink and like was writing it? Let me respond to that because I think that's a very important point that we need to kind of hit on is that I'm not troubled by the fact that God could speak them in a language, even a limited language, because if God was going to take the trouble or even speak to people in general, we look at his infiniteness and say, how could we capture God into words? But I think that God could obviously use words to communicate with us the way that he could create us in the first place. He knows everything about us. He could communicate to us. I mean, in 3,800 places in the Old Testament, the words God said or God spoke to me or the word of the Lord came to me, some synonymous phrase like that is used by all the different authors at different places. So I think that to say that maybe a couple of them had an impression of God, sometimes he spoke in visions, sometimes he spoke in nonverbal cues, but it would be odd to have that many authors kind of simultaneously attributing those things to God and for us to believe that God couldn't speak to people. It's excessive repetition, maybe nothing more than a cultural phenomenon. Or it could be that God was speaking. And I think the thing that we sometimes read into, like, 
it doesn't take away the capability of God speaking to people and the fact that so many different views across the Old Testament and all the number of years it was either written or passed down orally until it was written all seem to have the view among different authors that he was actually speaking to them. The New Testament writers had the same view that this was actually stuff that was spoken. But, you know, if God could just beam the thoughts in, I'm not opposed to that, right? Because some people had visions, some people had dreams. So I'm not saying that it has to be verbal in the way that we understand verbal communication. I think the step we're trying to get to is when that occurred, when the prophet received a word from the Lord, whatever that is, even if it's not a word of vision, whatever the message was, and then he writes that down, would you attribute that as a place where you'd say that is, that contains revelation? Is that how we know where it is? Like, how do we know the parameters? Because I think I would be in Phil's camp where it's going to be kind of troublesome to figure out, like, if we don't declare that the whole thing is God's revelation, what's the test for when we know that it is and when we know that it isn't or is none of it his revelation? So what do we do with texts like Leviticus? Clearly, we do not follow the way prescribed to follow. You know, in essence, what we're kind of backtracking and saying, we're, we're like, well, yes, this is a part of God's revelation, but now it's not revelation which is as useful or, as, or it's not the right revelation anymore or it's a different revelation. Like, we create this kind of problem when we make this statement that, you know, we have to know that all of this is trustworthy. We have to know that all of this is... But all I'm asking is if it's not all trustworthy, that leaves two choices. Either none of it is trustworthy or some of it is trustworthy. There's only, there's only like three ways you could do it. So if you've taken off the all of it is trustworthy, what I'm trying to ask is, first, is any of it trustworthy? And if so, how do we know? Because I do believe there's value in having a scriptural revelation from God. I mean, even in the abstract. Like, if, if we were to sit down and, and consult with God and say, like, okay, you want to talk to your people, uh, you could either show up once a year and just have a, an address, like the State of the Union, you could have the oral tradition continue into the future, or you could express it in writing, which could be simultaneously carried by all people at all times, and we at least have, you know, something to go against, and that way it's not subjective, and everybody isn't kind of listening for the spirits and interpreting it. Like, we have at least something to measure for. I could see benefits to having a written revelation that's true, that we can go back to, and we can hold as a measuring rod and say this is, like, what's been revealed. Not the only thing. But this is at least something you can hold it against. I see benefits to it. What I'm asking is, if some of it is and some of it is not, that kind of leads us right back to where that benefit I just talked about is gone. Because now we have to search the very thing and think, I don't know what is and what isn't. And I don't know, is this myth? Is this legend? Is this just a copy like of some other version of this myth from somebody else? Like, it's troublesome. Sure. But how do you resolve that? Like you sound like you don't that you're okay with the tension. I, I appreciate that. What I'm saying though is you can't just say, well, some of it is and some of it isn't. But I really don't know what is and what isn't. <laughs> you're not going to resolve some of those questions. The more that you study, the more that you learn, the more that you immerse yourself in the study of text and genre. The more that you immerse yourself into the culture of the ancient Near East, the more that you immerse yourself into that type of knowledge, you're going to have more questions, and that could lead to doubt. And that's fine. I mean, it doesn't bother me. 
I, for me, it doesn't lead to doubt of the divinity. It just leads to doubt and maybe some of the ways that I used to think, which I think is healthy. That, I think that's appropriate. And it leads to, well, how do I balance out the, the things which are said here in one place but are different in another? There, there are three different accounts as to how Saul dies. Right? There are multiple accounts as to how the people of Israel entered into and conquered the land, partially conquered the land, didn't conquer the land at all. Those are all contained. That variety is already within the tradition where it's, one would say it's inconsistent. But see, I wouldn't, I wouldn't actually say it's inconsistent. I would just say, no, that's just a part of the vitality of people who are transmitting a tradition that's just going to be different. But because of that, let's say what you won't call an inconsistency, but because of that vitality of tradition, you would look at that particular piece and say, that probably can't be divine revelation because that would be awfully strange to have those three parallel accounts, we'll call them, at the same time coming from one inexhaustible divine source. I think it, it, I just don't know that it really matters. I mean, was there a Saul and, and did, did he disobey and, and, and was he replaced because of his disobedience? Yeah. Okay. I'm going to come back to the question. Monique's been waiting for a while. Go ahead. Um, so I was going to voice a frustration from like the people listening perspective. I can appreciate that you don't think it's like, like you're like, why even ask that question? It doesn't matter, blah, 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 because it's this and the forgiving and the stories. And what's frustrating from here is that, so it's like, I can appreciate that you think like this question is not important or it somehow doesn't take away from your faith because if that's your position. But I'd really like to hear the answer to if you can pick and choose whatever you want from the Bible because we don't even know that it is divine, how would you or someone in your position say, this is from God, this isn't from God, this is from God, that isn't from God. Is there any consistency in that? And if the answer to that question is, no, we can't know, then just say that and then we can be like, okay, well, this position, you can never know that. So yeah, you can pick and choose whatever you want to believe is Christianity or not. What's the measuring stick? Like, how would you go about it? I would say, though, that that's not what I do. That, that, that endeavor is not the endeavor that I would undertake because all of it could be the Word of God, but it's not the only thing that is the Word of God. In other words, it, is all, it could all be revelation from God. How, how would you determine what to believe or like the nature of God or what to take seriously? It's like, I, I hear what you're saying, you're saying it's not my job to be like, oh, God said this and God didn't. But when you claim to be a Christian and you're following something of faith, which you can't take faith out of it, um, how do you pick and choose what directs your path or the way you live or that reveals God's nature or if Christ was even God or what it even means to be like saved or be a Christian or do you have to accept Christ was divine like all these things that kind of like you, you need order to like faith in a way so it's like how would you pick and choose and what do you throw out and what do you keep and then there's no consistency whatsoever I think that when we are trying to ask the question of how do we know that this was spoken from God, that we're missing 
the more important part, which is its connection to us. That is, our connection between us and the experience of God, the divine, the, the religious experience in general. So, in other words, the point is, I feel like that we can do that endeavor, right, of seeking out knowledge, of understanding theology, of understanding uh, the, the, the source of text, those kinds of things, without first having to say anything at all about its inspiration. And in other words, we don't have to start first with saying, with, with some officially constructed statement of, thus the text is inspired, and we can now go forth. Th that's not the rubric by which I think that we can actually I might that. agree on the topic of inspiration, but I think why the, the general frustration could be there is because we as Christians, and even in this group, spend a heck of a lot of time using scripture as the backstop to the thing that we're discussing, whatever it is. So inspiration, whatever occurred, if it didn't at least result, in my opinion, in the scriptures actually being the authoritative word of God, not the only word of God, and certainly not higher than the eternal logos, Jesus Christ, but if it is not his revelation, then even I, as somebody who's either going to cite to it or sit under its authority or, or study it, have a totally different task in front of me because now you've removed the crucial thing that makes it the authority. Now I would appeal to Christ himself personally which I do in prayer. But the problem is, if I'm going to teach a Bible study, no, maybe where the Bible study's wrong, if I'm just going to preach, and my only authority is hearing from Christ himself and the Holy Spirit testifying to me, we're all in a lot of trouble. I'm not going to have anything to say. And when I do have something to say, even when I say it, I'm not sure that if I've received a word from the Lord, that... I'm right, because somebody else might stand up and say, well, I received a different word than you, and I received this word, and somebody else received this word, and I, and I know this sounds like we're trying to make neat, tidy little corners, but I wouldn't be able to do this anymore if I didn't have the authority of Scripture. See, I think that's probably one area which you and I just don't agree on, and that I, I, I see that as a, a movement that comes out of the Protestant Reformation, and, and certainly the, the early church fathers, of course, it has authority. Like even in the, in the tradition of the church, right, uh, in the Roman Catholic tradition, it still is the final authority. Like there is still that, the language is there, right, where the scriptures are that which is most important, but it's not elevated to such a degree. Let me, let me put it this way. Not that I don't believe that it's the ultimate authority, but that it has become so elevated and has no sounding board anymore. In other, it, it doesn't... That belief that the scriptures must be the only ultimate authority by which I can do all of these things and I can understand how to live my life and how to vote, okay, which is, which is so predominant in Protestant American evangelical Christianity, is, I think, vapid. It lacks the, the, the kind of existential, personal, traditional, the, 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 the prophetic word of the spirit which still moves in the community. It lacks that. So we spend so much time saying, it's got to have this authority. And if it doesn't have this authority, if I can't test everything against it, then what am I going to do? Well, You and I agree on that point. Yeah. Actually, I've often said that I think maybe our yeah, doctrines of sola scriptura are kind of like a knee-jerk reformation reaction, right? Okay, so you and I might agree on that, but there is still a distinction that's very key there. 
I'm not going to elevate it to what some liberal scholars would call like biblical fetishism, like we love this so much that, I mean, that's, that's the crude way. No, it's, it's the crude way in which it's described in many... I've in, never heard Oh, yeah, I'll, sh- I'll show you the sites. I like I'll, that. I'll show you a few choice sites. A um, yeah, that, that kind of shocked me when I was reading it. But the difference, though, and this is very key, is if you remove its authority... I'm not saying that we should not listen to all those things that are going on, but once you remove its authority, now we actually have no backstop, even to allow that other expression, whether the the spirit working in the church, the body itself functioning, God's divine purpose for the church, even the traditions of, of the church, we still, once we remove that authority, I think we get into trouble. You want to jump in, Dan? Yeah, when you're talking about like, we don't have the authority of the Bible being able to preach and things like that, it seems like in the Bible, many of these prophets of the Old Testament and the apostles themselves were not citing the authority of Scripture when they're going out and proclaiming the gospel and proclaiming these are things that the Lord says. Like, Peter's a fisherman. He's not a biblical scholar who's citing, I'm standing on this authority of the Bible. I'm speaking because God has inspired or whatever spoken to me in some way and I'm speaking on that authority and I feel like why can't we do that like you know what I mean like I'm gonna leave the second point for a second if you want let me address the first one though because I think you're wrong on the first point you know we often have this view like Peter's just some fisherman yeah but he was a disciple of Christ for three years if you look at his speech in the beginning of Acts again if we're gonna say it was even recorded anywhere near correctly he's making an appeal through the scriptures of how Jesus fulfills the scriptures If you look at the epistles, including the one that are attributed to Peter, they're filled. All of the epistles are filled with references to the Old Testament and how those scriptures are applied and how they're fulfilled. So I don't think to say like they didn't have that view. They, In fact, just the opposite. We might say, well, that's just the New Testament trying to authenticate the Old Testament. Forget that for a moment. Just look at them as historical writings. Those people definitely believe in the power of the scriptures of the Old Testament, and they definitely believe that they were being fulfilled in Christ. They believed it for sure because their writings are filled with it. All of their letters are filled with these references to try to show Jesus as the fulfillment. Jesus himself thought of himself that way, so it wouldn't be strange that his disciples would think of himself that way. When Jesus said, like, I've come to fulfill the law, and he's citing this whole body of scripture. You know, so you see it over and over. I think at that point, at least, I want to correct. Can I push back on the first point? Yeah. I'll definitely agree with you on the New Testament, but what about in the Old Testament, like these prophets, Amos, and all these random guys? Like, Are these guys who are steeped in like what Scripture says about blah, 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 or are these just guys who God is speaking to, and they turn around and say, hey, look, God started speaking to me. This is what's up. Or are they standing on, okay, because of blah, 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 in our Scriptures, I can say these things from God. Oh, that's why I think that this view about something going on in the divine level is so important to understand, because many times... I would agree with you, like, if you read every account of a prophet, most of them start out something like this, like, in the year of this and so-and-so, I was doing this, and the word of the Lord came to me right. and said, you're going to be a prophet. Like, they weren't like, hey, I'm going to be part of the book. Like, I don't think they were thinking that way. You know, they were thinking, like, the, the Lord compelled me, sometimes against their will, to become a prophet and say these words, right? That's why I think that the, the, there's evidence of this kind of divine overlay over the whole scriptures, because it comes out with a pretty interesting story that's somewhat cohesive. In fact, I would say all the way cohesive. But one example I give is, take a look at like Psalm 22, David writing a psalm that he has no way of understanding that could be describing the crucifixion of Christ and that Christ is later going to cite. Like, did he know that? No way. 
I mean, he was writing something that he was going through. He was using descriptive language that maybe applied at the time, maybe didn't. Now, you could say, as some liberal scholars would say, well, that's just the fortuitous that the New Testament scholars are able to say, hey, I think we can link a psalm in here. Yeah, but it's done over 400 times where they're like linking one thing after another, after another, after another, and bringing it in. I don't think the Old Testament writers knew that. I think that's evidence, again, of kind of that superintending of the Spirit. That's just my view of it, right? So, yeah, your view is correct. I don't think they knew they were participating in writing Scripture at the time, but I don't think that's the point. You know, like later on we can say, the evidence of inspiration is here. This book should be part of the Scriptures. All right, uh, I think we're going to go to Brittany. You got a comment? Uh, yeah, well, one, I think it's a big problem with linking the idea of authority to God said this, um, and it's making it very binary. Like Either God said this and it's authoritative, or God didn't say that and it's not authoritative. So that's thinking of authority in a very narrow sense, um, because it doesn't mean that there's not authority if God can specifically say this word for word. You know, if five words were different, well, oh, that's not authoritative anymore because it's not exactly what God said or something like that. Or even if it's the gist of the message. It, that's not authoritative anymore. Like, it's still from God, right? And so, so I think that's a problem. We're in agreement on that, by the way. But I think that fits in the definition of plenary inspiration to the degree that, like, they wrote it the way they could, even with inaccurate memories, even with, like, colorful language or whatever they came up with. But my view would be that in the end, that was still reflective of the authoritative message of God. So I think we're, we agree for different reasons. But I'm not disagreeing with you. If they didn't remember what God said correctly, then you know, you're supposed to say God said this. I mean, they didn't remember the words right. And but you're fond of always citing back to historical, cultural issues at the time. The level of exactness of a message that we would attribute is not attributable to them, right? They don't have quotation marks. It didn't even exist in their language, right? So you and I would agree again. I think that to point that out and to say, well, for that reason, they could have used the words differently... <laughs> Right. I actually think that maybe in their minds, we see a lot of places in the Old and New Testament where numbers aren't quoted exactly right or certain things are attributed to other people because that level of exactness that drives us crazy, like we have to have it a certain way, I don't think it meant as much to them. No, right? I, I exactly agree, but I think Drew and I think almost a lot of Christians would endorse that if it's not the exact words, it's not authoritative. And I think the reason for that is because they haven't thought it through the way we have. But let me say this. What I would say is authoritative is God allowed them to write his words down or his, his message, whatever, whether it came verbally or not. What I believe is that in the end, whatever allowance or variance they had, it was within his sovereign control to allow that to happen. So I'm not trying to say that if the words aren't exact, it's not authoritative. But what I am saying is when we get to the point where we look at a text and say, I don't know that God really said that. I'm not meaning the exact words. I'm saying I don't even know that that was correctly received or anything. That's what I have the problem with because now we've removed the authority of it by saying I doubt that even happened. So you're saying that it cannot be correct words, but I doubt the gist of the message so that is authoritative. What makes it authoritative in my view is that God allowed them whatever he allowed them, whether it was a certain margin of error, whether it was reciting other sources, whether it was interviewing people, whatever they used to write, but that if I'm correct, that God's sovereignty controlled that process so that the ultimate result was what he wanted it to say, then it's authoritative. If we took a view that said that 
they took the message and somehow it changed, I would have trouble saying, yes, I'm going to live my life by that standard because I'm not even sure that's what was originally communicated or even close to it. So in God's sovereignty, then, he could allow somebody to put in a story that's completely incorrect of what happened, but just because God allowed it to be in there, then it's, uh, it's authoritative then? Right, because the authority doesn't come from the writing. The authority comes from God being over that process saying, that final product is what I want it to say. And yeah, that, we're going to have to talk about when we get to inerrancy, like how does a book that is inspired contain this statement, for example. So our theological view of inerrancy might have to shift or change to understand or say we don't quite understand, but I actually believe that question comes first because inerrancy would have no meaning if this text wasn't authoritative and the way God wanted it to be. Why would we even talk about inerrancy? It wouldn't even make any sense. But then going off of that, like something, if we're going to say like this is the word of God, like, and this is what he commanded his people. Like, we have to really carefully look at those commands and like, what is this and what are the implications of that? Because things like genocide, things like, you know, take, kill everybody except the virgins, you can take them with the rest of the plunder. Like, things like that, we really need to look at the implications of that and like, okay, well is a God saying this, God we want to follow, and then how do we understand that in the idea of inspiration of scripture? And I think that's something really important that we need to wrestle with with this idea of inspiration of scripture because it's, it's easy to get comfort from oh I can rely on this it's authoritative like I can it can back what I do but then when we really get down to some of the really ugly parts of it like what do we do with that I think that what you just did is exactly what led us to this problem in the first place and I think it's good that you did that because that's what we've done we've looked at the implications of this book being authoritative and said, we don't like that in some places. So we've begun to question its authority. A lot of this problem comes out when we look at things and say, if I ascribe to the entire scriptures a level of authority and don't question any part of it as coming from God, I'm going to have to deal with some things that are very, very difficult for me to deal with. And that's all I'm trying to validate. That's exactly what's going on here. In fact, I think that if this group is true to what it's supposed to do, we have to go into those things at some point. Like, to summarize it, a lot of the books, when they approach how do we even get into this problem, they point out Bible difficulties, Bible contradictions. They point out things like myths that seem to have worked their way into the scriptures, legends that are in there, things that predate the Bible that are in the Bible, places where sourcing seems to have taken place, and things that we just wish weren't in the Bible. And so you take that whole ball and then you say, okay, so I've got two choices here. I could either say, yes, the scriptures in their entirety are authoritative and we have to build to get there. You don't just say it automatically, but I'm going to have to accept all this. Or I can like look at it and say, maybe some of these guys didn't quite get it right. Maybe they heard from God, but they didn't hear correctly. Or maybe this is just the way they wrote. Maybe they just attributed things to God. And that way, I'm a little bit off the hook of having to deal with these things in here because I really can't deal with a God who would say to go do this, right? If we're true to it, we've got to actually address some of those things. We wouldn't be honest in this discussion without going into it. It's just way out of the scope of Scripture. But we have to go there sometime. Like, that almost leads us into those discussions. And it's important to note that, like, some of the early scriptures, like, to get out of those problems, they just allegorized. Like, this is how we interpret it. This isn't what actually happened. Like, this is teaching this message. Like, a lot of them didn't think that this actually happened. 
But we've repeatedly cited Jesus over the last number of weeks expressly reserving the law and the prophets. In fact, he says to the Pharisees, like, you search the scriptures to find eternal life, but you don't realize that they testify about me, right? He keeps going back to not one iota is going to pass away. Um, we mentioned some of the ideas of things that maybe are in the Old Testament, but I was like noting that in my notes, like Jesus cited the stories that most people think are myth- like most people look at the scriptures and go, oh, that didn't happen. I mean, he cited to Noah, Moses writing the law. He cited to Adam and Eve. He cited to the murder of Abel, the destruction of Sodom, the salvation of Lot, the loss of his wife, manna from heaven. He cited the queen of Sheba, the wisdom of Solomon, he even cites Jonah being swallowed by the whale. Like things that all of us go, that's ridiculous. Those things didn't happen. They just wrote about them or they said they happened. But Jesus who I believe still is like, you know, he knows what he's doing. He didn't come down to earth in the incarnation and make himself dumber. Um, I still see that what we've identified as the living eternal logos incarnate is citing to scripture constantly and affirming its authority. And even the stories that we think, nah, that's silly to believe in them. He used them as examples and believed in them. So I think in some respect, I see him sitting under the authority of scripture. Even places that we think, I don't know about that. That sounds so weird that a man would be swallowed by a fish for three days. Like that's just got to be allegorical. Jesus saying, that's the perfect example for the way it's going to be with me. He was a Jewish rabbi in the first century. Yeah, who also happened to be God. Oh, yeah, but it, what, how str- if, if, he had, if he had gone into a discussion on the geological strata of the earth and or, you know, the different, I mean, could you imagine Jesus standing in front of a first century audience and instead of using Noah as an example, as a part of the tradition, begins to discuss the, the atmospheric conditions that led to such and such and such and the chemical composition. I mean, they'd crucify him then. You know, <laughs> this, this guy's crazy. I mean, come on. Like, I don't think that that's, that's not good enough to say that. But why would, I mean, I don't know. It just seems to be weird to have Jesus on earth telling people stories that even he knew were myths and said, ah, let's just keep the story going. It's like, let him keep believing in Santa Claus. It's good for them. You know, like, what the heck? You know, makes everybody happy at Christmas, Moni. But if we take kind of more Jewish point of view or whatever, that it doesn't have the authority or it wasn't fully inspired, couldn't you just say that Christ never said those things? Actually, that's a thing you'll commonly hear as a refrain. So it's true that it is said. I mean, people say, well, but we don't even know that that's really accurately what Jesus's words really were. Like, I see, like, both, I think we both have, like, a lot of really good things to say. And there are issues on both ends. Like, you're bringing up how we have to go into the difficulties of Scripture, things we don't like. It's clear, you can see from the two views that that is the problem. Because you're both arguing, like, well, Jesus said this. And even Jeremy was like, well, yeah, of course Jesus said this, but it's because he was a rabbi. But with your same view, I could push back and be like, what do you mean he said that, Jeremy? Like, how do we know he said that? They wrote it down wrong. Like, yeah, that, that, I wouldn't count that as pushback on me, though. I, I could just accept that as part of the, yeah. <laughs> to be fair, I don't want to be flippant about the people who say that's a problem. We don't even know that Jesus said those things. There are people who, who really look at that and say we don't know that he said those things. And there are people who spent a lot of time defending the historical accuracy of the Gospels to say whether you believe in any of what he was teaching or not there is high degree of confidence that he said those things. So there's people on both sides. I don't want to be flippant about saying that, but that is one of the problems. We've even encountered it here where you're using the New Testament and what Jesus said about the Old Testament to authenticate the Old Testament. It's like, I mean, I agree. If you don't believe in anything in the New Testament, then we have two problems, not one. But, I mean, that's, that's a fair point. Jason? I don't know necessarily that if Jesus is 
talking about uh, stories in the Old Testament that he's authenticating them as absolutely true in, as historical events as much as he's speaking into a very important narrative to all the people. As, not just he's a, a Jewish rabbi, but he's a, a man speaking to a Jewish audience as a teacher of the scriptures. And they are living their lives in this narrative of all these different stories. They don't. They wouldn't hear things unless they heard things in ways that they understood it. He says, "I'm not going to give you a sign except for the sign of Jonah." They knew what happened to Jonah, whether that really happened or whether it didn't. That was a story that they were very familiar with, um, and it had a very powerful message. They had the imagery in their mind. They had the knowledge of that, um, and so he's speaking into that narrative because it's such an important narrative for them. We, we talk about a lot of different things, um, World War, things that happened in World War II, things that happened in the Civil War, and we speak of them because that's our narrative, and we don't know all the facts about them. In fact, we're probably wrong half the time with some of the facts, but we speak into that narrative because it speaks to the people, and it carries a message that's very important for us in our conversations. For them, it was very important in their conversations that he talked to them in that narrative. Um, and it's not to say that those are historical events that absolutely happen, but more that these things are important narratives in our lives. And because of that, you will understand the message that I'm speaking to you. My response would be, it's interesting that Jesus, for the most part, only cites scripture when it's pointing to him in some way. I agree with your point about narrative, but. Jesus used parables a lot more, and he had other means of putting the people right in a place where they could understand what was going on. And he used parables and, and, and he used a number of metaphors quite frequently, which was also something that rabbis did at the time, right? I mean, he used that method so much so that it would seem strange that he's only citing to certain things like Noah and like Jonah to make points about himself. So that's kind of my point is, I guess in my personal opinion, I would just say I would have trouble with Jesus citing the things just because they were in the narrative if he knew that they were not true. I'm not saying that by citing them, we can look at it and go, aha, it is true. I mean, that's what a lot of scholars do, and I, I would cite them. But it would trouble me if I later found out when I got up to heaven that he kind of knew they weren't true, but he used them anyway. I would think, hmm, that, that would trouble me. Now, I'd probably be quiet about it, you know, and say <laughs> All right, I know it's been long, so the last comment of the evening goes to Philip. I, don't, I agree, though, with you that like, just because he refers to these like, parts of the narrative of the Old Testament, that, that means they have to be true. Like, I agree that it doesn't follow necessarily, but I don't think it follows that it... Like, I don't know, like, it doesn't necessarily have a direct relation one way or the other, but it just seems weird to say, like with Jeremy, your original comment, like, well, because he was a rabbi, that's the only reason he said these things. Like, um, because it was his way of communication. Like, well, his way of communication should be making up his own stories. So, like, why did he refer to these ones at all? I definitely wouldn't say he was just a Jewish rabbi. I just think, <laughs> I just think it would be so strange, right? We're asking, we're saying, well, be, clearly Jesus didn't disagree with it, so it must have been true. You know, I, I just think it, the, the opposite would be so strange. I mean, so it, it just it seems not unusual, right, that Jesus would participate in the common experience of faith of the community he was a part of. That, that doesn't take us to, to the position to say that it's authoritative, but it also doesn't take us the other way either. 
again, I'm the guy who's going to stay in the tension, who's not going to solve that, that I question. I feel like it lends itself more towards that side that it would be true. Only, like, in my opinion, only because it feels like I'm going to, Jesus, who, like, believing is God, like, I'm going to attach myself to this tradition, which I know is false. But, like, just because everybody else believes it, like, I'll go with it, too. You know, like, it seems a little bit weird that it would lend itself more that but way. But in what way is it false? I mean, also, like, just because something's factually not true doesn't mean it's false. Like, doesn't mean there's not truth in it. Like, we're just thinking things very, like, scientific. That's awfully that's postmodern, though, to think that something that is factually not true is not false. I think that's what got us into some of the trouble. And, and just so I'm clear, the reason I come to narrow it, and, and, and it sounds like, Sometimes I'm creating a slippery slope or, oh my God, what happens if? But I believe in this area of scripture that once we say that it is not authoritative, it's the revelation of God in its entirety, it is so hard to pick and choose at that point that it becomes impossible. You know, it would mean that everything we do in the church is somewhat silly. And, and, it, and maybe somebody should say, well, then maybe it is. Maybe most of what we do is silly. We should be doing something totally different. We'll start exploring that when we do the purpose of the church talk that Philip has been <laughs> pushing us on. Let me let me close in prayer. First of all, thank you, Jeremy. Can you guys thank Jeremy with me? <laughs> you know, the, the great thing about doing any of this with Jeremy always is is we can disagree about things, but I've never, ever doubted the charity with which he does it and the grace with which we get along. Like, we'll be laughing about this tonight, I'm sure, no matter where we go. I'm glad that Jeremy and I can talk about these things and have all the discussions, even disagreement, because I don't think anyone has the corner on the truth here. I think that Jeremy's right when he says that Christ is the word and he's the ultimate truth. He is truth. And so we're just trying to use this tool to get at it, okay? Hopefully it made you think a little bit more about inspiration tonight. Let's pray and close. God, we are humbled that you even give us the opportunity to bring these things to mind. Thank you, Lord, that we have a place to meet. Thank you that we can even sit here and discuss this, even in the disagreement, even in the tension <coughs> uh, that wisdom is produced, that new ideas and thoughts about you are produced. So, Lord, that's what our job is, is to produce these questions and these wrestlings and these ideas. And I believe, Lord, with my whole heart that you, God, the Holy Spirit, can take these things and produce in them the things that you want, spiritual fruit in our lives that will make us more and more like you. Lord, that it's your job to transform us. So this is a spiritual discipline. It's not always fun. It's not always easy to be disciplined, to wrestle, and to actually think through things that you've put before us. But we've done that tonight. We've wrestled through them. We've struggled through them. We're not even sure that we're clear about them. But Lord, we put them into your hands tonight. Use them for transformation. Bring us closer to you. In the end, that's the only test that matters. Are we more and more like you? And Lord, I ask that you help us to examine our hearts in that way this week. We pray this in your name. Amen.